Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest, Meryl Alapatu. She graduated with a Doctor of Physical Therapy from the University of Florida in 2008. After graduation, she completed a year-long clinical residency at University of Florida Health Center in cancer rehab and has continued her clinical work specializing in rehabilitation for patients with cancer and pelvic health issues. Dr. Alapatu completed her PhD in rehabilitation science at the University of Florida in 2014, studying mechanisms of pelvic pain in women, and is currently a research assistant professor in the University of Florida Department of Physical Therapy. Dr. Alapatu has been a member of the American Physical Therapy Association and Florida Physical Therapy Association since 2006. She has served in multiple roles in the FPTA, including two terms as vice president, and currently serves as speaker of the Florida Assembly of Representatives. She has been a delegate to the APTA House Delegates since 2014, and she also serves on the board of directors for the International Pelvic Pain Society. Welcome, Meryl. Thank you. Hey, Meryl. Hey, thanks to both of you for inviting me and having me on here. We are so excited to have you. Likewise. So, Meryl, we'd love to hear your story. What got you to where you are now? You can take mm-hmm. us as far back in time. If this started when you were four, or those things <laughs> shaped you. <laughs> so I'm assuming you're talking about my career trajectory, pelvic yeah. health, rehab, pelvic pain. So I was in PT school, and we were required to go to these 7 a.m. lectures once a month. And you'd drag yourself in there, trying to get your coffee into your body, and just suffer through it before you take on your eight-hour day of classes following this. Anyway, so this one Wednesday morning, a pelvic health physical therapist named Vicki Lukert presented some information about the clinic that she was working at. And she was talking about infertility and physical therapy. And pelvic health physical therapy was not even something that was mentioned in physical therapy school back in, I started PT school in 2005. So we had, I think, our musculoskeletal classes beginning in 2006. And so this was something that wasn't even mentioned. So this was, it definitely piqued my interest because what is this? And infertility for using physical therapy, it was just, it was intriguing to me. And so I just, I got interested in pelvic health PT at that point and was able to arrange for a full-time clinical affiliation with Vicki Lugert at uh, University of Florida Health. And it was then working with her and Lynn Owens, the other pelvic health physical therapist there at the time. Now it's this huge program, I think one of the biggest in the country, and just seeing their patient care and, and the patients that they treated and what they were doing. And it was really meaningful to me to see the change that happened in these patients after mm-hmm. undergoing care. And these patients were just so grateful. And these were issues that no one really talked about, leaking urine or feces or pain during intercourse. And these were the subjective exams or the histories that we took with these women during my affiliation. Some of them were really emotional. And you could just tell that this problem that they'd been dealing with, oftentimes they didn't feel comfortable 
necessarily talking about it with their friends or family or partner. And it took them a long time to even share this information with the provider. So for them to put that level of trust in the physical therapists and me as a student physical therapist, it it really left an impact on me. And so I decided after graduating from PT school, this is an area that I really want to work in and did a residency in pelvic health and cancer rehab at the University of Florida. And it was during that time, my question started to get a little bit deeper and not just why are pelvic PTs so great, but why do some patients seem to do really well with pelvic PT and other patients don't? And it really forced me to look more critically at the specialty practice area just in general and then more specifically thinking about the psychological and emotional factors that can contribute to a patient's pain experience or their outcomes with physical therapy. And this is where I started some clinical questions that I I really did not have the tools or training to answer. And that's what led me to seek out the UF Rehabilitation Science PhD program and get some more formal advanced research training. And so that's led me to where I am today. And you've had some great articles since you've been researching pelvic mm-hmm. health because a little backstory, Meryl and I actually met during my residency where I yep. was having the same experience. So it's really cool to hear your story because I remember being like, why are people not getting better and mm-hmm. starting to wonder about fear avoidance and kinesiophobia? And that's where we got introduced and started having that conversation. And your research really opened up my eyes to that in pelvic health where it seems like it's so applicable, but mm-hmm. it's not the first thing we talk about. No, we it's f- not. So could you share some of what's come out of your research over the years and the highlights? Yeah. So just to be clear, I am not the first person that thought about psychological factors <laughs> in women with pelvic pain. This has been um, studied and published for decades. But I think potentially we started thinking about this a bit more related to physical therapy for people with pelvic pain. I think we were a little bit late to the game, maybe in pelvic health, thinking about psychological factors. People have been studying psychological factors and other types of musculoskeletal pain, back pain, fibromyalgia, etc. for decades. And so I was fortunate at UF to work with some of those individuals, both physical therapists and clinical psychologists, who really were pioneers in looking at some of these psychological factors, psychosocial factors related to pain with people who have musculoskeletal problems. And so I remember when I approached a couple members of my advisory committee before starting the PhD program, I said, well, there's no one here that's really studying psychological factors in pelvic pain. Is this appropriate? Should I go somewhere else? And the response given, and I really appreciate it, was we don't necessarily have people focus in in pelvic pain, but you'll get a really good foundation for understanding pain and the mechanisms underlying musculoskeletal pain. And this information, this knowledge is what you can use to shape your dissertation. And so that's what we did. And we were at a journal club one day, and I think we were talking about the fear avoidance model of musculoskeletal pain. And my mentor, Mark Bishop, and I, and a couple of other, the grad students, I think I said, this seems like it'd be applicable for pelvic pain, for women with pelvic pain. But the continuing education courses that I attended as a PT at that time had never brought these things up. The focus was always 
biomechanics and anatomy. And I think those things are important to some extent. When we have people with persistent pain and, you know, particularly persistent pelvic pain, when your issues are pain with intercourse or debilitating menstruation, these things go to your friends at happy hour, unless you're a pelvic health PT, of course, and and talk (laughs) about these things openly. So that actually stemmed the idea. My mentor said, why don't you write a review article then about psychological factors and pelvic pain as it relates to physical therapy and care that physical therapists provide and use that fear avoidance model that's already very well established as your frame of reference. And so That's really where, for me, I started to think about it more seriously and look at this as a line of research. Excellent. I'm curious, too, with your research. So it sounds like there's this aspect with pelvic health beyond Mm -hmm. orthopedic conditions where there's the shame of talking about these topics, this difficulty connecting with others who might be experiencing the same thing. Is there any other differences that you found between pelvic pain specifically and then other types of musculoskeletal conditions that contribute to people having that persistent pain or that kinesiophobia. Any differences between the pelvis and other parts of the body that you've noticed? Yeah, I don't know if I could answer that completely. A lot of these persistent pain conditions have a lot of similar factors that sort of contribute to the pain experience. Patients often report that They may have depression or endorsed depression or anxiety or fearful of certain things. We look at people with pelvic pain compared to people with, you know, knee pain, for example, the types of things that they're fearful of or the activities that they may avoid related to their pain, you know, might be a little bit different. But there is this heightened sense of thinking heavily, focusing heavily on the pain that we is, we consistently see across different pain conditions. So you're saying most of the mechanisms are the same. I think the landmark part of it is that we weren't talking about it in pelvic health. And I think we're still not talking about it as much as we need to. There's so much more that I see about muscle tone and releasing trigger points than there is in how do you help someone reduce catastrophizing as a PT? Mm-hmm. How do you help someone reduce fear avoidance to sexual intercourse as a PT? Like we're not having as many of those conversations. And I'm curious what you think of that, maybe why we're not having it. I think this whole physical therapist sort of embracing persistent pain as more than just a musculoskeletal thing, I would say that's still relatively new. When I was in PT school and we were going through musculoskeletal, we were still taught about Waddell signs and yellow flags and what's the word malingering, like those terms were still used back in 2006. And so this whole idea that the patient's saying what their pain is means that this is what the patient's pain actually is, and they're not trying to get something else out of their insurance company or you as a physical therapist or other provider. There was still a disconnect there even 15 years ago. And I think, number one, the topic is still relatively new to physical therapists. It was only a couple years ago that the APTA endorsed the International Association for the Study of Pain DPT curriculum information. And so I think this information is starting to become more mainstream in physical therapy programs, but we're not quite there yet. And essentially, that's where our training starts as physical therapists. If you're not getting this information as 
a key part of your training, you're relying on continuing education, you're relying on things after graduation. It's not as mainstream as it should be. I'm seeing a lot more of it on social media, people talking about it, but it's one of those things, how do we actually incorporate it as a core part of the DPT curriculum and PTA education as well, and not just a single class on pain, if you will. It's so disconnected, right? It's here's all the anatomy, the kinesiology. I remember a whole class on watching people walk Mm -hmm. and I was like, what the heck is this? (laughs) You know, and then the stuff that is so important. I, as a provider, now I could say this because in PT school, you're right. I still remember Waddell's sign and malingering, Mm -hmm. but now six years out, I'm like, that's not what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like I have yet to meet the person who wanted to be in pain for Mm -hmm. five years because of a payout. That's almost a consequence of the fact that maybe they've had pain for so long or they've been so mistreated by the system that they are seeking reimbursement for the five doctors that miss their issue or something. So I love how you're saying it's a shift. And I'm also hearing that we haven't met the critical mass yet. We haven't had so much of this integrated through our pain courses and our curriculums Mm -hmm. that the majority of physical therapists feel really comfortable and confident with this. Mm -hmm. The way that we feel with our anatomy and our manual muscle tests and you know, prescribing. Exactly. And and manual therapies, it's had its run for so many decades now. It's like hard to undo what we think is happening with manual therapy, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. anti-manual therapy for the listeners. Mm -hmm. I just think the way we explain it sometimes is a bit nocebic or really puts people in a helpless position where they're dependent on us. And so it's how we use the tools we have. I think the other thing, Monica, that you said, why is this not mainstream or why are not all physical therapists thinking about this is that it's also potentially, and this is what I, working with psychologists, clinical and health psychologists, this is also what I hear is it's also potentially a scope issue. Mm -hmm. Do we as physical therapists have the ability, and I think we do, to determine if someone is severely depressed or anxious and should be seeing another healthcare provider? I'm a licensed physical therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not qualified to treat depression or severe anxiety or anxiety period. How do we better integrate the services that we offer as physical therapists with psychologists, with other mental health providers that can and really provide a team approach to these patients? A lot of therapists don't feel comfortable working with people who have chronic pain, because oftentimes they just don't know what to do in terms of, is this patient's depression or anxiety or catastrophizing? Is this preventing them from making progress in physical therapy? And what do I do with that? How do I navigate around that? So I think it's a little tricky in that way as well. Yeah, it's it's really tough in physical therapy, because oftentimes we're challenging the patient with the thing that scares them the most. Mm -hmm. In the case of someone who has dyspareunia, we're challenging them with an internal exam or with some of these manual techniques that could be triggering to anxiety or could be triggering to a traumatic experience that they had. Mm -hmm. So we're the one confronting them with this stuff, but then we also sometimes don't feel like we have the training to address it or to not necessarily treat it, but 
just direct them to the right place or manage it appropriately within the context of the session. So Mm -hmm. I I think that team approach is so key, but there's just this big disconnect, I think. Yeah. And a lot of times mental health services are not covered by insurance companies. And so then what do you do? And if the patient's not able to pay out of pocket for those services, then, you know, they're left with me. (laughs) And I'm, again, not qualified to treat these conditions that don't fall into my scope as a physical therapist. So it's it's tricky for sure. I love that you bring up the scope issue because as you're talking about it, I have this thought that we also screen for red flags. Mm -hmm. We're taught to do that. And I'm not going to treat your cauda equina. I have no idea what I'm doing. You don't want me to operate (laughs) or anything else. And I I think it's the same thing with mental health, but it feels taboo for some reason. Like it feels more taboo to screen for anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, fear avoidance. But all we're doing is screening, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can address the pain-related beliefs that are related to physical activity. I feel like that's my scope as Mm -hmm. a provider. Sure. I'm definitely not going to diagnose whether you have PTSD or bipolar or any of that. And I think we can let that go. We're not responsible for anxiety, even if we identify high anxiety. We're not responsible for their depression, even if we identify that they are depressed. Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. I think it is the, okay, then what? Because if we identify that people have endorsed depression and anxiety, it's easy for us to say, I don't treat that because I'm a physical therapist. But then it is my responsibility to try to get that person in with a mental health provider that can address these issues. But that's going to take more effort on my part. And that's part of what makes these patients, their care more complex than someone that comes in with stress incontinence after having a baby, for example. But I think it's challenging. I read an article once where medical providers were asked to describe people with pelvic pain and they're described as a, it's a clinical nightmare because a lot of times providers don't know what to do because the blood tests, ultrasound, MRI, everything comes back looking quote unquote normal. Everything looks fine. And so what do we, where do we, what do we do from here? Where do we go from here? I know. And I I think of them as they're the little canary in the, if you've ever heard that saying. So miners used to keep a canary in a tunnel because Mm -hmm. if the the coal mine fell, the canary would notify you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an expert miner. So if I just totally murdered that, let me know. (laughs) But But essentially the canary is the one that's alerting you that something is wrong. And I think our people with persistent pain, especially persistent pelvic pain, are letting us know that the system isn't working. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. I'm just going to, I'm going to do what the system lets me do, Mm -hmm. what I can do. And just overall, we're not willing to face how much the system isn't working. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead label them as difficult. Exactly. Non-compliant nightmare. It's interesting because just today I was sitting in my car for a dentist appointment and I had an alert about a new article that came out and it talked about empathy and chronic pelvic pain. Mm -hmm. And they had just researched women with it and found that most of those people with persistent pain had experiences where their healthcare providers were not empathetic to them. Did they say what just healthcare providers in general? 
I read the abstract, I'll be honest. I didn't get into the full text version, but the title really pulled me. And so the abstract didn't exactly get into why, Mm -hmm. but it said that most of them had that experience and that empathy is something we can develop as a skill. And I think that's why I'm a big advocate for people with pelvic pain, especially if it's musculoskeletal in nature, seeing a physical therapist. I think just the amount of time that we are privileged to be able to spend with patients Mm. and listen to their story and give them strategies. And I don't know that a lot of other providers have the privilege to spend as much time with these patients. And I, I just, I think that listening and developing that therapeutic alliance, that's another buzzword that's out there, but really developing uh, a relationship with patients beyond just, oh, here's my nine o'clock pelvic pain patient, I think is so important. And that we have a really unique opportunity to do that. And sometimes just that empathetic ear is one of their goals coming in the door. I can't tell you the amount of times on my intake forms that people have checked off. They just want to understand and get an explanation for their condition, or they want to maybe learn some strategies for how to manage it, but they're not necessarily always looking for a cure. And so I think that for us can take off some of the pressure of, okay, I've got to fix this person. And instead we can just sit there and hear them. Because mm-hmm. that's so key. I think that so many of them have been brushed over and said, oh, just do this, just do that, have a glass of wine, whatever. But we haven't taken the time to truly listen and to absorb their stories. So I think that you're so right. and We can really spend that time to develop that alliance with our mm-hmm. patients in a different way. So how do we get physical therapists to be more comfortable with these soft skills? So that's a great question. I think the number one way to do it is, is to practice, right? Number, I mean, practice doing it with your patients. You have to have the time to do it. And I think with pelvic health physical therapy, for the most part, you're, we're one-on-one with patients. And that, again, that's a privilege of working in the specialty area. We're not seeing 25, 30 people a day. It's just, it would be impossible to do that. So I think number one, practicing it. Number two, acknowledging that communication and being able to develop a a solid relationship, a therapeutic relationship with your patients is actually important. It's not just about your patient showing up, doing the exercises or doing whatever treatment you have laid out for them that day and then being compliant with your exercises and coming back. It's a bit more than that. They have to buy in to what we're telling them. It's not just, oh, I'm a physical therapist. I'm here. I'm up here because I have a doctorate degree and I know what's best for you. But it's bringing yourself to the level with the patient and going through their story, their experience with them and truly understanding what it is that they're going through. Physical therapy is a very small part, can be a very small part of one person's life. People have all sorts of other things going on personally, professionally, whatever it might be. And understanding who your patient is as a whole and not just their condition, I think is really important. And from your perspective as a professor working with students, Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on how best to develop this emotional intelligence, empathy, these what we call soft skills in students? I think, yeah, so this is something that we talk about. Actually, the line that I lead my 
professional issues one class, which is my first semester, first year student classes. This is the class that is going to teach you how not to get fired, not not teach you, but provide a foundation for (laughs) what you need to know and not to get fired, not to fail your clinical affiliation. And what we tell them is that you are all very intelligent people, right? You're, you got the book smarts, you were at the top of your class or close to the top of your class in undergrad. And you're sitting here now with the people who are very similar to you in terms of your intelligence level. And so you worked really hard to get here. There's no one's questioning how smart you are. But the reason people have issues when they go out and work with clinicians, either with single day visits in the clinic or their full-time clinical affiliations or working with people in the community is not because they don't know the origin of the upper trap, okay? It's not because they don't know the action of the obturator internus or whatever muscle it is. It's because their communication issues There are professional conduct issues. There's a lack of taking responsibility, lack of preparation. So all these things that we call, quote unquote, soft skills are the ones that are going to make you successful. It's taking that information and being able to apply it in a way that is thoughtful and professional respectful. It's, it goes beyond just knowledge. And so many of our students, and this is not just my students, but students, I think, across the board come in. And because they've worked so hard to get to PT school, they're laser focused on their grades. Top of the grade, I, I need to stay here. And it's, it's a competition almost because this is what they've had to do up until this point. And so one of the things that we emphasize is the difference between a team and a group is a group of people individuals who have individual goals, agendas, things that they want to achieve. That was maybe where you were an undergrad. Now you're part of a team. There is mutual accountability. There are shared goals and values that you all have. And they come up with these. Their class, our first year classes do this. And this is the culture that we want to establish here in our class. This is how we say we will engage. These are rules of engagement. This is how we're going to behave with each other, with our faculty, whoever. And I think this mindset is really important going out into the workplace as well. It's not just how many patients can I see in a day? How many units can I bill for? But how am I going to work as a member of this team? How am I going to not only make myself look good and, and do the best that I can, but how can I support my team members to do this? And I think those skills related to communication and teamwork and respect, I just, I think are so valuable. And I, I think when they get out into practice, it clicks. When you're in school, there's just so much information that is thrown at you and you're trying to understand and grasp and put together that I think there's less of a focus or less of an emphasis, at least in the student's mind, on these soft skills. I wish we could, I wish we could return that. To yes, us, you know? totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even the fact that you have professors and students, it kind of mirrors that hierarchy you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, my professors have all the answers. And I remember my professors trying to tell me I don't have all the answers. It really depends. But mm-hmm. in my mind... I can't come out of 12 years of school not thinking that the teacher knows everything and I'm the student meant to absorb it. And then suddenly 
flip a switch, turn it off and be on this collaborative level. And Mm -hmm. I can look back on grad school now and see that's what they were trying to foster. But you're 100 percent. It's you don't think that that way. And then you get a patient in front of you and you assume that role and then maybe feel like an imposter because you don't know what the heck you're doing. You're trying not to kill them. (laughs) (laughs) So are there any types of exercises or activities that you have the students start with to start developing these soft skills? They do. It's a professional behaviors self-assessment tool. And so this was actually a tool published by, it was came out of Marquette University's physical therapy program, I believe, but it's uh, 10 different professional behaviors with several different sub-behaviors underneath each of the 10 main behaviors. They evaluate themselves on these behaviors the first semester, and then again in their second year, and then again in their third year. And in their first year, everyone has a faculty mentor to whom they're assigned. And so we have a couple of meetings that first semester. We talk about the professional development tool and how they've evaluated themselves. And then based on how they've evaluated themselves, what goals that they develop, because they're required to develop goals um, to work on in their weak or weaker areas of these different behaviors. And so that's one way that we try to help foster these skills. And the other way that we do it, obviously, within the didactic program, we have group projects or team projects. Team projects, we have a huge community engagement initiative within our program as well. So our students are able to go out into the community and work not only with clients or patients, but also with other healthcare providers, other community leaders. And so I think there are opportunities that they have outside of their actual courses to help further these skills and also their leadership skills, which was another really important part. So it starts with self-reflection, right? It does. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And it has to be carried through the entire curriculum. It can't, like you say, just be one course and then be, okay, we're done. Right. You've learned everything you need to know about communication and empathy yeah. and, and all of yeah. these skills that you need to be a healthcare provider and a good human in the world, but it's carried through and incorporated. Yeah. So it sounds like you've got a really great program where you're really considering these things as a common thread throughout all of the courses instead yes. of just a, a box to check. Yeah. And if there are issues with misconduct or professional behavior, whatever, these professional behaviors, those 10 professional behaviors, and then also, of course, the APTA core values, which are also introduced that first semester, these are things that we always go back to. And if there's a discussion that happens with the student or with the students as a whole, these are the things that we refer back to. This wasn't just a, like you said, Sammy, it wasn't just a you know single class where we learn about these things, but these are things that we want you all to embody and continue to develop in. It's not like when you graduate from the program, all of a sudden you're going to be the best professional ever. Professional development is a career-long thing that all of us are continuing to work on in some way or another. Definitely. So, Meryl, let's get into our lightning round now. Instead of hitting you with the tough questions, asking you to solve the psychosocial (laughs) non-acceptance in PT, we're going to take it a little bit lighthearted. What is your favorite drink at the moment? My favorite drink at the moment is, let's see, I don't make it that often. My favorite drink is tequila and pineapple and soda. 
Ooh. Wait, wait, did you mean a, did you mean alcoholic drink? Or are we yes. just talking about <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> we, it's funny because we leave it open ended, and the majority of people have alcoholic drinks and recipes. But we have had some people say like soda, water, so we leave it open. <laughs> but we've got some great drink recipes from this show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't really use recipes. It just that tastes a little weak. This tastes a little too strong, but yeah. <laughs> Love it. What is the best book you've read lately? The best book I've read lately is uh, White Fragility, actually. Mm. Um, I read it last year, and I refer back to it quite a lot. But I'm in the, I'm in the middle of reading some different books, but that's the last one that I completed. Excellent. What is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? Stop and think before I open my mouth. Because it's gotten <laughs> that me is, in trouble before. That is another good tip for anyone listening on how not to get fired. Um, yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> awesome. If you weren't a PT slash researcher slash professor, what would you do for work? I would rescue pities. Oh, Meryl yeah. has... Do you have two cute dogs or just one cute dog at the well, moment? We have two. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, very cool. And are they rescues? Yes, they are. There yep. we go. So, so I'd live on I, I would have to have a huge farm, a lot of acreage for all the dogs to run around. <laughs> that sounds, that is actually my secret <sighs> fantasy when I think of if I weren't going to be a PT is just a massive farm with yeah. all types of dogs on yeah. it. Like no dog left behind. Exactly. <laughs> And finally, how do you define a conscious clinician? I define a conscious clinician as one that is self-reflective, able to not just look at what it is that they're doing as a clinician or as a physical therapist, but the impact of what they're doing is having their patients or clients and their colleagues and also on themselves. Awesome. Great answer. So Meryl... If people wanted to connect with you after this, how could they find you? Where could they find you? They could find me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at Pundispice, P-U-N-D-I-S-P-I-C-E. It's a very long story from high school, but I should probably get a more professional handle, but it just stayed for so long and I'm lazy, so I'm just not going to do it. Um, and yeah, and they can email me as well, Meryl at ufl.edu. But just fair warning, my social media is mostly pictures of my dogs, social justice issues, and an occasional sprinkling of my kid. <laughs> You've been warned. All right. Thank you, Meryl, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk about this with you. And stay conscious, everyone. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.